Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich, founder of the League of Movable Type, and this is the Weekly Typographic, a podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hey Thomas. Hey Micah. <laughs> that deep voice. Welcome back, my friend. <laughs> it's good to see you. I'm glad we were through technical problems that berated us for the last two weeks. Yes. If anybody's interested, those technical problems were that our software wasn't recording. <laughs> but now we have new software that seemingly is recording just fine. Heavens to Betsy's, hopefully so. So, Micah, tell us, what is our game plan for today? First, after last week of coming on and talking to people and saying, hey, we would love to learn what you would love to learn. We got a handful of responses in our inbox, which I very much appreciate. So I wanted to shout out to everybody who emailed us with some ideas. And if you haven't yet emailed us, but have some ideas, we would still love to hear you. I mean, our inbox is always open and we are actively trying to plan for cool and interesting educational topics that we can come on and chat about and teach something. So if you have ideas of stuff that you specifically have been wanting to learn about as a designer or a type designer, then just shoot us a quick couple sentence email and tell us what you're thinking. And it'll be excellent food for us to plan in the near future. Food for thought. Yeah, exactly. Then this week, we're going back to our regularly scheduled email uh, links. Remember that the weekly topographic has both a free and a pay tier. There's, we're going to be right. going over the top five links of the week from the weekly typographic. But there's also a paid membership as well that gets you access to super secret links that are for the members only. So if you want to jump on that, Micah, where do they get on that? Just go to our website, theleagueofmovabletype.com, and you'll see a little thing. And then in the newsletter every week as well, there is a link to upgrade. If you're a free member, you can upgrade to the membership, which is only five bucks a month at the moment. And I was actually excited because we included three fonts this week that at least a couple of them I had found and was very excited about that I will only tease because it's members only, but there's Mm -hmm. some very cool stuff and only five bucks. So that's the plug. Thanks, Thomas. That is no problem. That is the plug. So let us jump into our first article from Rano Friedberg. I'm going to go for that. We're going to go with that (laughs) naming. Now, this site is a big old site that... (laughs) basically broke my CPU. (laughs) But Micah, tell me, I hit a bunch of different great, interesting articles, but the one I looked through and clicked open was the first one I saw on the upper left on reflecting on interaction design. Micah, what were your thoughts on that? That was how I found it. This is a designer that I follow who works at Vercel, which is a developer internet company. I have a lot of respect for They do really great work. And so this is a designer who works there and had posted this article of invisible details of interaction design. And A, when I first saw it, I was like, wow, this is beautifully typeset. It's very minimalist, right? Like it's mm-hmm. just black and white for the most part, other than imagery and very simple typography. But like just it it has that invisible typeset characteristic, right? Mm-hmm. Even like subtle things like the table of contents that runs on the left side, for example, on a desktop experience, it's very subtly typeset, like on a lighter gray, very tasteful approach. Which also very beautifully disappears when there's not enough space for it, interesting enough. 
And I was impressed by the way that the blog looks. And it's basically like a blog of thoughts on design. Most of it, either software or web. There were two really great in-depth articles. This one, and I would recommend if you're a web designer and interested in web stuff, there's another one about crafting the Next.js website which had a lot of really interesting CSS details that were creative solutions. But this one on invisible details of interaction design is a lot more like conceptual design, which I appreciate and goes into detail about the metaphors and how those metaphors have translated into devices from like how they took turning a page and taught you with the interaction on an iPhone how to swipe left to get to more information, for example. Or like where the idea of pinching came from, like digital pinching on a phone, like squeezing to go in and out. It's not even historical background. It's just, hey, this is the concept. This is how it translates from real life. And I'm pretty sure this is where the ideas came from. And it's one of those things where... I think a lot of us who deal with interaction design in any way know these behaviors and movements that we have to be aware of as we're building software, but haven't quite thought of how those came to be or the idea behind it. And once you start trying to think of the idea behind it, it opens up the possibility of coming up with potential new ideas on your own that work just as well. That's my thought on why this is so interesting to understand the metaphors behind the metaphors. Well, yeah, to quote the end of the article, he says, analyzing and making sense of design details beyond just, it feels nice, helps nurture taste, amplifies level of execution, and grows appreciation for how hard the pursuit of excellence is. Mm. I think it's very well said. And it captures the spirit of what we care about in education in the very first place. Because yeah, we have all these intuitions of how we design. We know we we know what feels good and what works good, but to actually sit there and to plot through the mechanics by metaphors, concepts, etc., it allows us to be more articulated about what's working and why. And to do what you're saying, Mike, which is to build on these points. By the way, on a side note, I really appreciated his comments on things like he he goes into very specific research methodologies, like certain principles and laws of optics and interaction. Mm-hmm. He made a note about radio menus being the exemplar cause of Fritz Law, apparently. One example. Fitz, Fitz Law. Uh, yeah, thank you. But my note to myself on that was literally the iPod menu. Remember the original iPod menu, the one with the spiral menu? The oh, click- yeah. For those who remember the click wheel iPod, it was a great piece of design. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just want to make a comment about that. It's um, interesting, too, because you bring up this Fitz Law and this chunk in the article where he's talking about that in a radial mechanic. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so back up. Fitz Law, in a sentence stolen from Wikipedia, a predictive model of human movement used in UX, right? So it's basically like trying to guess what a human is about to do to make that easier to do, like mm-hmm. right before it's about to happen. And I remember at least tangentially related to this designer because it was something from Vercel that they tweeted a couple weeks ago that I just am now remembering that they had modified the menus on their site. It was like the file menu and they had put tons of effort into building out this really crazy 
virtually invisible system for their menus of following your mouse pointer and drawing this ever-changing triangle so that it could guess which submenu to open and it would leave it open if it thought that you were trying to look at it and if you were moving your mouse past it it would ignore it and equally too so that you wouldn't accidentally click on something that you weren't trying to click on hard to describe audibly but it was this insanely detailed system of triangles overlaying pieces that you couldn't even see just so that the interaction of opening the menu felt natural so that it did what you wanted it to do instead of just being wonky. Well, anticipating needs, right? Right. There was a section in the article about that. So like, for example, by looking on the screen, Apple Maps will show the active route navigation without unlocking, looking at the phone. Apple Wallet will increase the brightness of the screen when presenting a pass for scanning. And mm. Spotify will adjust the interface to be more accessible when driving. So the, the driver's mode and the user interface. Which is ironic because I hate the driver mode. I don't know about I know, that, but at so. least it's the point. It's anticipating right. needs. It's, yeah. Yeah. So a wildly in-depth article. If you're at all interested in interaction design or software design of any kind. What is your time examples. reading? And by yeah. the way, like I actually really, on one last note, I really appreciate it. It's about fidgetability. Yes. Like, so good. The old AirPod case, right? To flip it in your hand or like the Apple Pencil was an example of throwing it through your fingers as you're messing around. Great I writing constantly. Yes. Great writing expresses a phenomenon you just thought was no big deal. Right. Like you had intuition. Like literally, I remember I, I do that. I had my AirPods and I would do that. I like enjoyed that, the tension of the case flicking open and close. And I just thought it was just a random thing I enjoyed doing. But by him putting a name on it, yeah. fidgetability. I'm like, oh, sh- that's an actual, like, of course, it makes a personal experience common. So when we're kind of saying, what's the purpose of this article? Why talk about all this when it's just, it just works so people know it by giving a name to it. Now we can point to it to all together. So that's why it's really useful because now there's that concept like fidgetability, when things that are pleasurable to fidget, but we actually can name it now. We can name examples of it. We can express it in our personal lives with things that give us that feeling. And then we can make it a goal for something to design with. People just like having things around them that are, we enjoy fidgeting with. All right. So with that said, our second article is originality and typeface design by Peter Belock of Tipo Tech. The general summary of it is a reflection between Peter, the author, after a discussion with Gerard Unger. No, I can't pronounce things for my life. Thank you, Micah. Examining the notions of originality and boundaries between interpretation and plagiarism. Micah, what are your thoughts? I'll admit, okay, this is one of those very dense type nerd articles that if you're super type nerdy, uh, you will enjoy. I was pulled in by the introduction here where it actually started talking about comparing movie making to font marketplaces and how the rise of movie sequels has led to tons and tons of money and movie studios making more and more sequels because that's what sells comparing that to the list of best-selling fonts on my fonts and how everybody's got a version of these top fonts because everybody wants those top fonts that's what everybody's using right yeah to quote from the article both film and typeface design work with a careful mix of familiarity and novelty both prefer the repetition of successful formulas 
and both take every opportunity to milk their successes for all they're worth. Yeah, that's a great quote. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Everyone loves the good hits that work. And it's reflecting on meditating on that point. Basically, what's the line of how do we innovate? Should we? Where's the incentives to do so? And how to approach it? There, and there's a note that generally there's a kind of drive or instinct to be original because, for example, there's a discussion of Eric Von Blokland did a little study where he had 90 different designers plot the node points for a lowercase n and no, no designer had exactly the same point position. So just an example mm. of everybody's going to interpret the same source differently. That'd be one example of it. And even Which for the record, too, that is an argument that you hear all the time people saying, there are so many fonts. Why do we need another one? Or my idea for some design or some product or something that I want to make, it already exists. Maybe I shouldn't make it. I usually say, nobody has made it like you will make it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't help but put your own twist onto something by making it as you. Yeah. Because generally a good training in type design, they do at the KBAK, I did a type of Cooper, is a historical revival. Like it's one of your training grounds as a type designer is revive a historical typeface from a print or metal source of some kind. And generally, even Unger himself makes a commented that personality emerged in all his typefaces, even when he tried to imitate historical models. Basically, his instincts, drives, and biases colored everything he designed. So that's an example of demonstrating your point, as you said, Micah. He says that in here too. It can be incredibly hard sometimes if you try to capture the spirit of the original, what can be considered a flaw and what can be considered a defining characteristic. And I appreciate so that. The, it's the decision-making process for reviving. It's a very fair point. And in fact, it goes over a bunch of contemporary designers investigating or dealing with these questions of interpretation and originality. These are the kind of questions being opened up or ruminated about in the article. Which is tough, too, because one of the difficult parts about font licensing is that you can put a copyright on the font software and you can't copy that. But at the same time, you can't really copyright the letter A and you can trademark a really unique way for drawing. But like the letter A is this universal, uncopyrightable thing because it needs to be used and it's owned by nobody. And so there's this weird mishmash of, is this version of an A really mine? If I make something that is too close to something, whether I, if you like directly copy the points of the software, that's not okay. But if you draw it out yourself and it's very similar, it might be different enough that legally that's okay. And it's like a really tough line to walk. It is. Now, there are some ex there are some typefaces that actually got patents, for example, or trade dresses. So thus, their visual appearance is defensible. But it's very rare. It's incredibly rare. Most of the time, it is the software per, as software that gets copyrighted and protected. So beyond that, so it also is the, shall we say, the community of type. It's basically what happened was Lucas ran into the kind of one of the cultural Dutch type traditions. And he got his butt burned from that. So that's also the, we're, we're not just anonymous people on the internet. We're part of a community. And you, you're, paying, you're paying disrespect to your colleagues if you're doing direct copying of someone. So that's where the problem comes up. When is a copy and homage of honoring versus right. exploitation 
suspect and taking advantage of something. That's a very gray area. I actually have joke with people. I think the answer really is basically did the per- is the person dead or not? That's basically yeah. seem, Shoot. that seem that seems to be the demarcation line. It seems to be. I think generally more tolerance for this when the person's passed away versus the <laughs> designer still living is what it is. Yeah. Interesting. Not a fact, just an opinion. Just like that's an that last note was an opinion. Simply <laughs> right. an opi- a heuristic of observing the marketplace and our right. cultural norms in the community. If you have comments about that, you can send us an email. That's fine with me. Third article. The Evolution of Web Design by the Rule 5 Design Team, exploring how websites have transformed from simple static pages to dynamic and interactive experiences that captivate audiences. Micah, shoot me. What's your, I feel like this is your town. This is your territory, not mine. <laughs> I think it's a really good resource for somebody who is learning about web design and is potentially overwhelmed by a lot of the, especially maybe somebody who's like learning how to both uh, designed for the web and maybe coding and programming and stuff too. It's a really good definition piece where you can read through this article and find out what a lot of the buzzwords mean. Yeah. And Baby's so first website. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it has these very long, somewhat mediocre typeset paragraphs. <laughs> Frankly, I wish this was like, 10 times the amount of subheadings and less walls of text, but whatever, it's fine. Um, Talking about a, how the web has gone from purely static hand-built HTML to the rise of JavaScript and how we can use a lot more dynamic information to build. And then CMS, what the heck is a content management system, which frankly, somebody who's like trying to learn about the industry I guarantee there's so many people who have been like, I've seen the word CMS everywhere. What the heck are you guys talking about? And this is a useful primer on that. Yeah, that's a, Micah, I like the way you framed that. So exactly. <laughs> it's for a very specific kind of person. And if you are that kind of person, kind of getting into web design, want to know about the context behind it. This is a great article for you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Our next article is from Julian uh, Lanier on multi-layered calendars. Calendars allow us to travel forward in time and see the future. More importantly, they allow us to change the future. Very strong words. Michael, what are your thoughts about this article? (laughs) I honestly, okay, so I found this also from Twitter, I think at some point recently. And this is similar to our first article. I think impressively typeset, impressively visualized a lot of the, as opposed to the first one where it was showing demonstrations of things that already exist, this is putting imagery and words to concepts of how it could be, which I think is really fascinating. And I'm especially interested because I would die without my calendar. Like I, I, anybody who knows me personally knows my brain cannot hold on to things. And so I have to write them down and I would be late to absolutely everything. And I would forget everything that happened if it weren't for literally last week, I had to send an invoice and I was like, shoot, I have no idea. And I had to go back into my calendar and look at where I had put in the chunks of time of when I had worked so that I could fill out an invoice. Yeah. yeah. And so this article is like demonstrating that as an even more detailed potential of like having your calendar like we use it now with 
here's when I'm meeting with, and here's when, you know, I'm going to this place, but also adding in fun things. Like this is when I was listening to Spotify and what music I was listening to and how stressed I was like with a color map and uh, extra details too. If I went for a run, but then clicking on the run and finding out I went based on information from the apps that I have integrated into my calendar. I went, I ran this far. This is how high, this is where it was when I was sleeping. Here's how well I slept details like that. I think are so fascinating. I do not understand why somebody hasn't built like a life hub with these ideas already. Is that the name of the app now? Life Hub? But no, but seriously, but what's nice about the first article with Rhino and now this one is this kind of higher level views of design, right? Mm. That type is obviously part of this. Like we're a weekly type of graphics. So we love type. That's where we're here, but we are designers and we're human beings. So we're running into the larger, these are just larger context of how type is used. And then this one actually more particular than the first article. This one especially plays on that point that text is more this kind of spotlight of notes, landmarks, right? There's a difference between typography of landmarks versus continuous text prose, like wrong, long running mm. text. Yes. Right? So I think that's a that's obviously not the focus of this article. You're, you're saying in the typesetting of the article. Yeah, but just the idea of the me- of the calendar type, like typography for me- and calendars. There's type mm. there. Yeah. It's yeah, just okay, not it's definitely right. a, it's a different beast completely than right. the normal typesetting we expect of paragraphs and whatnot that's there obviously here because you got a it's a long form long prose article and we're reading it right but the idea of the calendar itself i'm just i'm trying to paint the picture about why are we talking about on the weekly typographic we're a typography podcast right and newsletter (laughs) i guess also like you're saying we care about design and this is concepts in design right Mm -hmm. exactly so i just want to paint the picture for you for the audience for everybody listening so well yeah like he said like there's actually two sides of this, right? So one is the also, by the way, like because we're human beings, we got we have to be we have to be time managers, and I think it's noted about how we manage time with calendars, and then this opportunity how we can use this as he says at the end that these changes would not just make the calendar a stronger center of gravity in the aforementioned productivity stack, but turn into an actual tool for thought where time serves as the scaffolding for our future plans and our memory palaces of the past. I think it's very nice, poetic closing at the end. And I say that because, for example, like actually like the whole idea of like your stress level. So if you use all these other like kind of biomarkers, let's say your Apple Watch is measuring your heart rate, for example, and you go into a client and it so happens to track also your client meeting. Mm. Oh, shoot. (laughs) Exactly. So you can tell like, when am I stressed out? Because Where's my mental health? Where's it going? The indicators seem to show you're getting a little stressed out from this client, for example. Oh, that's that's such a good, that is the point of this article, but that specific idea that you just said, ah, uh, that's genius. Yeah, life hub. You know there what you I go. think for me personally, I feel like it would be the opposite of, I would be stressed just before the meeting. Yeah. And then during the meeting, I would have my shit together. So I'd be fine. Yeah. So they give structure to this. What he argues is that, so there's four major activities that actually interact with each other. Notes are just emails for your future self. Emails are just tasks and tasks are just calendar events. He's completely correct because I totally use my email as a to-do list, 100%. Like a future tense email, like a to-do list for myself. Yeah. Totally true. So again, a good writing is when it speaks to your personal experience that you didn't even think about 
from a conceptual point of view, you're just like, oh, I thought I was the only one who uses my email as a do as a to do list. It's probably worth noting the context here is he says my personal workflow looks like this, and yours does too, right? Yep, exactly the same. It's really Mine funny. Mine is not <laughs> fascinating, but it's interesting. Yes, and then he comments that he breaks up that the on this calendar on this model of treating your calendar as basically your writing structure or a thought structure. You have blocked out time layer, which makes sense. Basically, at a buffer zone between your activities. That's a good protocol to do if you're commuting or in your case, mic up comparing for the meeting. So <laughs> it correlates to what we we're just saying. You, if you had your biomarker track to it, it's, it would measure those block times, especially prior. It would be like high stress, high heart rate, for example, right. and then it drops. Then there's like a meeting layer. So this is like the convening times where you synchronize with other individuals. And then inside the meeting layer, there's to do that, to, to do tasks that you have to do certain things. So that's the hierarchy structure. And that meeting layer may convert into an activity layer if you're, say, in transit, for example, like on an airplane, as he says in the article. What we're also talking about here with this kind of discussion of biomarkers and the Spotify playlist, that is the kind of look back quality. So one is the kind of counter we're looking intentionally into the future, making plans, but then using our records, our digital records of the past as a memory for ourselves, as a palace of the past, as he says, which allows for I, do I do love a good memory palace. Yeah, reflections, basically. Nice shout out. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of life management or life hubbing, when you have a life hub figured out. <laughs> that we just invented that. Great. Why not? I do it myself. You should reflect at least once a month, if not once a week, once a week, to reflect how did my week go? How did my week go? Based on my Here's what the problem. I'd have to schedule that. <laughs> See, it would have to go. be on my calendar. Yes, but if you have this, if you have Life Hub with this kind of mechanism we're talking about, it would just tell you, hey, Bob, it's kind of like screen, it's like your screen use ping I get. So it tells me, oh, hey, you used, your screen use was like down this week compared to last week or up, for example. True. These are, so these are pings that just prompt you to reflect, basically. So you don't have to schedule it. Yeah. But, if, but you're right about that. But yeah, in general, I think this was a very, again, a useful higher level abstraction of thinking about design as, Really, this relationship to time in this case. So actually, it's an interesting yeah. in both cases. Interaction design from Rano in the beginning. And now this one's another discussion about designing with time. It's right, a very interesting right. theme we see here. And there's two points, too. One, I want to point out also at the end of this article, he says, he gives examples of these extra data layers like sleep and photos and stress and workouts and music and blah, 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 whatever. And he says, most of these data layers are pretty meaningless in isolation. It's only when we view them alongside each other that they unlock their value. And I find that that's such a perfect point to this article. That's with all of this technology that we have currently that is working for us, so much of it is disconnected. And so you don't really get to realize the value that it could provide to your life because they're just not attached to each other. There's no understanding. There's no connection. Right. That's what design does. It brings connections to things. Yeah. And so a uh, fascinating article. I, I freaking love this one. Very good. All right. So, Michael, our last article is a Design Week feature of Killy, rebrand by Ragged Edge. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? Ragged Edge, I was unfamiliar with, but seems to be a design studio that focuses on branding in London. And it's a pretty tiny article just showing like an interesting rebranding. The typography somewhere between techie and cute. 
and the little guy that they designed, you know, to like to put some kind of character to the concept of this invisible AI concept. Yeah, maybe we want to explain what Killy is in the first place. It's an AI assistant that helps content experts. At least that's what the article says. Similar to a bunch of the chat AI that has been popping up in the last six months, right? Yes. When I saw this and saw the mascot, I teased you before I had my one note about this. I can't help but think of Clippy. Oh, <laughs> it's Clippy. I mean, it's it's a little cuter than Clippy, I think. You know, you think I'm, Clippy is cute, but it would have been an endearing way. It's like, but I guess so. Yeah, it certainly makes it unique, and that is obviously the point of branding, right? So that you remember this particular company out of all of the other companies. I think the actual little guy is like only halfway unique. <laughs> like it's unique that he exists, but he's really just like a handful of cute little shapes. So he's reminding me know. of uh, who is that character from? Is it number? F- is it robot number five or? Oh, do you know what I'm talking about? Number hero, five, big hero six. Correct. Big hero six. And this, yep. That's exactly the guy I'm thinking about. Wow. That's it. You're right. They were basically like, let's draw a green 2d version of that. <laughs> Why not? Nailed it. Yeah, that's it. You hit it. That's funny. I mean, the branding is decent. Like the typography is good and the colors are good and whatever. It's all fine. Yeah. A little endearing. I don't mind. It's using, I believe, Clem Types National too. So the kind of quirky feeling you're getting in the headline, for example. And then it's paired that with the logo type. It's like a slap serif, but not like the, it has a little head serif on the eye, but it doesn't have the feet serifs. The L is a traditional flag serif and foot serif. I wonder what slap serif they're using. Because I don't think the article um, talked about that. Archia? A typo? A typo, yeah. Archia. Fascinating. Interesting. It's a Good pay what them. you want, which is interesting too. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's always fun to talk about rebrands. It does still speak to the fact that for all of the AI stuff that we have been talking about, I think designers don't yet have a great idea what to do with AI. Like the UI, we have a few standard models of chat, especially like we can steal the concepts from chat and apply that to talking with an AI. Here's one company who is trying to lead in the market, but want to make it feel more human. Yeah, and a little soft, a little soft touch. A little, a I little think there's going to be an interesting divisiveness over the next few months of, there's so many AI companies that are getting kickstarted right now, just thousands. And it's going to be an interesting division of branding of for each company. Are they going to try to make the company feel more human or are they going to make it feel more futuristic? Yeah, it's, I think that's a general theme. Basically, are they going to make this more approachable or are they going to make it more obfuscated? Yeah. Do you want it to feel like this fascinating mystery of future technology that I'm interacting in the year 2033 or, oh wait, that's not that far in the future. Doesn't matter. Not the point. <laughs> or Actually, is it like point. a super heart friend? <laughs> is it a friend that is trying to help me? I, don't I, think, know. It depends. I think it totally depends on the context, right? And what markets or whatever. I cannot help but think this is going to get used to make like basically a real live version of her, the movie. Oh, yeah. Fascinating stuff. 
Man, Micah, what a wild ride of a newsletter this week. Right. We talked about time and space and interaction design and Clippy and <laughs> reference. Oh, my. Historical originalism and design. Oh, my. So many different directions. But, Micah, it's been a real pleasure talking with you again. I hope everyone listening enjoyed the articles this week. And don't forget to consider joining the League membership as a paid member to get those super awesome links and resources not available otherwise. All right. See everybody next week. Doodle-a-doo. Later, gang. Doodle-a-doo. 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 Doodle-a-doo.